0: Morning and Happy Sabbath, everyone. It's good to see you. As you can tell, uh, the room is a little bit more sparse than usual. Uh, there's there's a uh, well, there are a handful of people who are traveling at the moment, and there's also a women's conference that's happening here in Victoria, and so there are a number of uh, ladies who have who have gone to attend that. And um, I'll tell you what, this morning, as we were rushing around and getting the kids together and rushing to Sabbath school and trying to get everything sorted out, I realized. Church is better with the women here. <laughs> much, much, much better. like the the women are make the the women are what make this church good that thats that's uh, that's a thought that I had as I was driving through uh, the city. Well, um, let's see if I can get this to that's backwards right? okay, cool, great. So uh, this morning, what we're going to be talking about is learning to live with your sin, learning to live with your sin. Now, uh, the Bible has some challenging truths that are difficult to reconcile. Uh, The one that I want to discuss with you today is the idea that we are inherently sinful, and yet God loves, accepts us, and offers forgiveness to us. It's a challenge to come to grips with our humanity. Um, Everything around us communicates that mercy and acceptance have their limits, and in most cases, they certainly do. And so we have a difficult time practicing long-term patience, long-term forgiveness, and consistent acceptance of ourselves and others. And this is why marriage is difficult. This is why relationships are difficult. This is why work colleagues are difficult. And I think the church also struggles with this. Uh, the church doesn't really know how to interact with sin and sinners, which is why every now and then on the news, you see Christians picketing um, different different events and different um, Uh, I guess, different movements, and sometimes they're a little bit cringeworthy. There are also times, and and I suppose the church doesn't interact well with sin and sinners because God in his interactions with sin and sinners are quite varied throughout Scripture. Uh, For example, there are times where God judges sinners, and there's a story of the serpents going into the the, uh, camp of the Israelites and biting them. And then there are other stories where God provides forgiveness and love, like uh, the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery. So the question is, how are we supposed to perceive how God perceives us and the outside world when his responses in Scripture are quite varied? I don't think there's a simple answer for this. I think ultimately we have to study every single story, every single judgment story in Scripture to understand what God is trying to do. Uh, I think a lot of the the judgment stories are explainable. Uh, A few of them are very challenging, but all of them teach valuable lessons. So today, rather than sweep this challenge under the carpet uh, with a simple explanation or rather than giving a theological explanation of all the judgment stories, uh, today I want to take a bit more of a pragmatic or practical approach um, as to how we can learn to live with our sins. Hopefully it will be helpful, and if you have any questions, of course, feel free to chat with me afterwards. If you want to discuss the judgment stories, happy to do so with you. So I've been working through three books that have kind of shaped this sermon and have kind of shaped my understanding. Um, The three books are uh, The Gift of Being Yourself by David Benner, who happens to be a psychologist. Um, There's a book called The Road Back to You, which is an Enneagram uh, Enneagram journey of self-discovery by Ian Morgan. Um, and he just, he, he's been teaching about Enneagram for quite a long time, and the uh, book is quite good. And then Brene Brown, who teaches the gifts of imperfection, who is a researcher who researches things like compassion, courage, and, uh, and love and acceptance. So the title for today is How to Live with Our Sin. Uh, but really, we're exploring the idea of learning to live with ourselves and learning to live with people around us. So the first thing that we do when we're trying to deal with this issue of living with yourself uh, from a Christian perspective or from a biblical worldview is unmasking our sin. So David Benner takes the approach that in order to live with ourselves, we must first unmask the hidden nature of sin. So one hindrance to us living in acceptance is the tendency to live in denial or suppression of who we are. In our interactions with people and with God, we tend to try and portray the best version of ourselves. The problem is that if we consistently try to get people around us to love the version of ourselves that we project, we never genuinely learn acceptance. Spiritually, if we try to live out who we wish we were, God never has a chance to speak and minister to who we are. So here are a few examples of what this looks like. For example, in prayer, um, and this is these are just examples from my own life. If you can resonate with them, great. So there are often times where I seek favor based on merit that doesn't exist. I seek fi- uh, I seek favor based on merit that doesn't exist. I've prayed hoping that God will interact with me because of who uh, uh, because of who I promise I'll become. I'm not there yet, God, but one day I will be. God, please be patient with me, and. For some reason I think if I promise to be good if I promise to be good then God will be kind. If I think there is more for, uh, I think that there is more forgiveness to those who deserve it. Here's another example dealing with hardship. My attitude and approach to prayer is based on what I think God wants. So if there's something unpleasant in my life that I don't like but I feel like God wants me to bear the suffering so then, instead of addressing the frustration, I express gratitude. God, thank you for this difficulty in my life that is teaching me resilience. And in this case, prayer has led me to become holier than I actually am. Because I kind of leave prayer thinking, okay, I need to be, I need to be strong. But really, I'm not. Then there's the issue of selfish requests. Many times I've prayed asking for things, giving good reasons for my requests, but not addressing the real reason behind my requests. So the request is that at the end of prayer, there isn't a deeper sense of the presence of God. The direction that I have could very well be from myself rather than what I think, uh, and, and what I think I should do rather than what God wants me to do. My own masking of myself then masks God as well, and I'm no closer to God after prayer than I was before prayer. Now, I want to say, I'm not saying don't pray for selfish requests. I think you should pray for them, as long as you know that they're selfish. That way, God can actually speak to your selfishness and minister to you. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Thomas Merton warns, There is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. For life is maintained and nourished in us by our vital relation with reality. So the truly spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but a total commitment to it. So the question is how do we then unmask the deceptive nature of our sin? I think the first thing that's quite helpful is recognize recognizing that sin is not about what we do, it's about who we are. Sin is not about what we do, it's about who we are. So in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, the psalmist says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I think this is, on one hand, a very difficult pill to swallow, but it's also a very freeing pill to swallow. And what I mean by that is, Nobody wants to be born as a bad person. Anyone who doesn't adopt the Christian worldview is going to feel like, okay, so you guys are saying I'm a criminal. Well, nobody wants to be born into the status of criminal. But at the same time, this also explains why we do what we do. And so on one hand, accepting that reality can also be freeing. If all we know about ourselves are the specific sins we commit, our self-understanding remains very superficial. And adopting the mindset mindset that we are all sinners teaches us to look beyond behavior and to look at the human heart. The second thing that I find helpful in unmasking sin is to have a tool that helps us understand our character. Um, I've really appreciated the Enneagram. And um, the Enneagram is kind of like a survey that lets you know um, what your... Not just what your personality is like, but what your character traits are. So unlike classifications of personality that are that are um, that are kind of out there, the organizing principle of the Enneagram, it kind of zeroes in on the basic sin of each of the nine personality traits that are in the Enneagram survey. Um, basically it states that our sinfulness, even though it's never simply reducible to one temptation, it assumes that behind the Enneagram, there's an underlying uh, major temptation that is particular to a specific character. And until we see that character trait for what it is, we will inevitably give in to the many expressions of the underlying temptation. So for those of you who are interested in the Enneagram tests, um, you can get the website from me later on or if you want to pull out your phone, you can take a picture of the QR code and that'll take you to a um, that'll take you to the Enneagram uh, uh, survey you can take it and kind of get a feel for for what it's about. So there are nine personality traits from the Enneagram survey. Um, the two dominant traits that I have are type eight and type three and I will bear my soul before you so that you can see what type of a personality Roy Kim is. This feels like group therapy. Like, Hi, my name is Roy. I'm a type eight. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) So type eight is a challenger and the challenger makes decisions fast and from the gut. So it's more like fire, aim and ready. I welcome opposition, bring it on. It's difficult to build trust for me and uh, difficult to be vulnerable with feelings. Now, it's interesting that whole difficult to build trust. Like I'm very wary of people who are super nice. And uh, many of you know Sam. And for like years, asking myself the question, "Why are you so nice?" And then like five years later, realizing, "It's oh, because she's nice." <laughs> like. Why is, she, why is she so nice to my kids? Why does she want to hang out all the time? Oh, no, that, that didn't come out wrong. Sorry, Sam. I hope you're not watching this. That was not a correct statement. <laughs> but anyway, finally realizing Sam is nice. Man, that was terrible. <laughs> it's okay. She's in Sydney. Hopefully you're at a different church this morning. <laughs> so the underlying temptation for type the type 8 personality or the type 8 character trait is anger. Um, And it's because type 8 people are very confrontational, they're very high energy, and anger is just kind of like there. And, um, you know, generally in public, I'm very conscious of like, hey, just keep your cool, just be calm. But if you ask my kids, hey, what's your dad like? They'll tell you a different story. I won't do it to myself. But anyway, you can take my word for it. <laughs> and, and I guess coming to the realization that, hey, my underlying temptation is anger, then I would then have to ask myself the question, what would it be like if, when I feel angry if I recognized these different traits that are associated to me? For example, right here it says um, it's difficult to be vulnerable uh, with feelings. Like there are times where I feel something I'm not ready to address it, so then I mask it with anger. So in those moments of anger, what happens if I just pause for a moment and ask myself the question, is there something else under there that's going on that I haven't addressed yet? Uh, Maybe there's a feeling of fear. Maybe there's a feeling of rejection. Maybe there's a deeper underlying feeling that I'm just not ready to open up about and just take me to pause, reflect, pray, and then maybe it'll help me. So just going through that discovery was a little bit of an interesting thing for me. Now, the other type that I am is uh, Type 3, the performer. And this is actually my dominant, dominant character trait. So I'm like 93% performer. And for me, it's important for me to come across as a winner. I'm very competitive, apparently, <laughs> to a fault. I love setting and accomplishing measurable goals. And when I read this, I was like, nah, I'm not competitive. And then a few weeks ago, we had this game night at Shane's house. And um, yeah, I realized, no, that's actually true. <laughs> I'm pretty I'm pretty competitive. There was this, um, we were playing Fictionary. And uh, the, the person whose turn it was to draw drew a stick figure and then pointed to the... Um, private parts of the stick figure and he's like okay guess now and everybody else in the room was thinking in their right mind thinking i'm gonna let somebody else guess and for me being like the person who wants to win as i just went for it i was like it's and then i yell it out and just as i yell it out i look up and shane's mom is cleaning in the kitchen behind us i was like why why did i do that and so for the rest of the night i'm driving home thinking it's the pastor that yelled though it had to be the pastor that yelled that out and as I'm just you know mulling over my mind what why am I so competitive why am I so competitive and then later on reading this so the underlying temptation of type 3 is deceit there's kind of this desire to always portray the best self it's like I need to be seen as the winner as successful because that's what makes me feel special And so there's kind of this underlying character trait of needing to be special. And so basically from that information, if there are moments where I find myself being very, very competitive, if I just take a moment to step back and realize, is there a sense of, do I feel inadequate at the moment? And and what would change if I went and spent time with people who I don't need to prove myself to? What happens if I spend time with people who just value me? What happens if I spend time in prayer connecting with God, just saying, hey, God, I just need a reminder of your acceptance, the fact that you care for me, the the fact that you place value in my life. What would happen? And as I've been practicing these things, um, I've been noticing that the, the, the strength of the temptation diminishes, like that need to be competitive actually winds down a bit and I'm actually able to slow down and think. You know what? It's okay if I'm not seen as successful. It's okay if I bomb a sermon. It's okay if I if people see me for the whatever it is that I'm afraid of being seen as. And so, as I'm just going through and unmasking these different things that I feel like I struggle with, it's it's quite a freeing experience. So going through the enneagram enneagram material has taught me some valuable lessons about myself, and I hope that. Uh, as you explore it, that uh, it might be helpful and beneficial to you as well. Now, if later on you do go through the Enneagram survey and you take the survey, I highly recommend going through the book, The Journey to Yourself, because there's such a great breakdown of each of the character traits, um, and it's from a Christian perspective, and so I like the fact that um, it provides some spiritual guidance and direction as to what to do with the results afterwards. Because at the end of the survey, if you realize, hey, guess what? You stink. You're just kind of like... Okay, thanks. Now what do I do? And so the question is, um, how do you move forward? And I feel like the book is quite good at that. So the point of today's sermon is not so much that you know yourself as a sinner, but more so that you know yourself as a sinner who is loved. And, and being able to connect with that sense of acceptance um, and, and security from God makes such a big, big difference. So Brene Brown, uh, who is a researcher um, who looks into things, uh, who researches things like compassion and love and acceptance, um, has has written this great book, and I just wanted to share a handful of thoughts with you um, from her book. So the first thing that she talks about is this idea of cultivating compassion. It's by cultivating compassion that we really learn how to embrace our imperfections, and it's in our imperfections that these things become gifts. So compassion. So she writes, when we're looking for compassion, we need someone who is deeply rooted, able to bend, and most of all, we need someone who embraces us for our strengths and struggles. We need to honor our struggle by sharing it with someone who has earned the right to hear it. When we're looking for compassion, it's about connecting with the right person at the right time about the right issue. Now, compassion is such a difficult, difficult thing to be able to practice, to cultivate and to experience with somebody. Uh, There are six examples of what compassion is not. And I want to go through those examples with you. The first example is the friend who hears the story and actually feels shame for you. She gasps and confirms how horrified you should be. Then there's this awkward silence. Then you have to make her feel better. That's not compassion. Example number two, the friend who responds with sympathy, (laughs) sympathy. (laughs) I feel so sorry for you, rather than empathy, I get it, I feel you, and I've been there. If you want to see a shame cyclone turn deadly, throw one of these at it. Oh, you poor thing, or the incredibly passive-aggressive southern version of sympathy, bless your heart. Is a third version of non-compassion. The friend who needs you to be the pillar of worthiness and authenticity. She can't help because she's too disappointed in your imperfections. You've let her down. Fourth example. The friend who is so uncomfortable with vulnerability that she scolds you. How did you let this happen? What were you thinking? Or she looks, at, she looks for someone to blame. Who was that guy? We'll beat him up. That's not what it says, but... That's, what, that's the version that I'm reading to you. And, you know, I think parents do this a lot, right? Um, your child comes home from school. Oh, I had a bully. Something happened. And, and rather than identifying with his feelings, it's like, let's go talk to the parents right now. Right? Not, not that I've ever done that, but just sometimes it happens. Here's the fifth example. The friend who is all about making it better and out of her own discomfort, refuses to acknowledge that you can actually be crazy and make terrible choices. You're exaggerating. It wasn't that bad. You rock. You're perfect. Everyone loves you. Here's the sixth and final example. The friend who confuses connection with the opportunity to one-up you. That's, that's nothing. Listen to what happened to me. In her book, The Places That Scare You, children writes... When we practice generating compassion, we can expect to experience the fear of our pain. Compassion practice is daring. It involves learning to relax and allow ourselves to move gently toward what scares us. And if we look closer at the origin of the word compassion, um, we see why compassion is not typically our first response to suffering, the word compassion is uh, derived from the Latin words pati and cum, meaning to suffer with. And so when we genuinely experience compassion, it's when somebody just identifies with our feeling. And Brene Brown explains this more as she talks about courage. So the root word courage is core, the Latin word for heart. It's one of the earliest forms, the word cor- courage, or excuse me, in its earliest forms, the word courage had a very different definition uh, than what it is today. Courage originally meant to speak one's mind by telling one's heart. Now, over time, that, that definition has changed, and uh, courage more seems to be seen as like uh, an act of heroism, to be a hero, to do some great feat. But um It's really important to really go back to that original meaning, because uh, really, when you look at courage, heroics is about putting your life on the line and making yourself vulnerable. And in today's world, becoming vulnerable is actually quite extraordinary. There are so many times when someone is feeling terrible, and they're in need of someone who's going to practice courage, be vulnerable, and say, hey... I know how you feel. This is my story. Like it's okay. We've been there. There have been so many times where both Jinha and I are just kind of like, "Oh, like our parenting is so like." like, There's just some moments where we kind of wonder, "Why did God give us children?" (laughs) You know, like this is a pretty big responsibility. Why would He do this to us? And and being in a parent group, sharing those failures, those foibles, and then everybody just being able to then say, actually, I've been there too. And I can't tell you how encouraging it is to someone to just have someone identify with your feelings. It is an act of courage. When we're able to practice courage and compassion, it leads to a third C, and that's connection. Now, the definition for connection is the energy that exists between people when they feel seen Heard and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment, and when they derive sustenance and strength from the relationship. In his book, uh, Social Intelligence The New Science of Human Relationships, Daniel Goleman explores how the latest findings in biology and neuroscience confirm that we are hardwired for connection and that our relationships shape our biology as well as our experiences. In other words, when you're emotionally stimulated in the presence of another individual, your memory can increase. That's probably why you remember all the really bad arguments that you have with your partner or maybe the reason why you remember your first kiss. I remember um, hearing about this and deciding I'm going to study Hebrew with Jinha because maybe if I'm with someone that emotionally stimulates me, I'll be able to memorize Hebrew better. And it, it actually works. <laughs> like Your memory increases as you experience emotional stimulation because that's how your brain works. You are hardwired for connection. <clears throat> you know, I think one of the most difficult things about connection is learning to open yourself up to that relationship of connection, learning to give and receive connection, learning to give compassion and courage and learning to receive compassion and courage. There's this principle, until we receive an open heart, we are never really giving with an open heart. See, when we attach judgment or condemnation or barrier to receiving help, we knowingly or unknowingly attach judgment barrier and condemnation when we give help that's why in scripture in the lord's prayer um, jesus uh, instructs his disciples to pray lord forgive me as i forgive those who have wronged me you know practicing courage and compassion and connection in our daily lives it's it's how we cultivate worthiness It's how we cultivate this sense of, or this ability to be able to live with ourselves. You know, the key word or the key concept to practicing courage, compassion, and connection is the word practice. Marley Daly, a theologian, writes, Courage is like it's a habitus, a habit, a virtue. You get it by courageous acts. It's like you learn to swim by swimming. You learn courage by couraging. The same is true for compassion and connection. We invite compassion into our lives when we act compassionately toward ourselves and others. We feel connected in our lives when we reach out and connect. See, this idea of love and belonging, they're essential to the human experience. It's interesting, as uh, Brene Brown conducted, conducted her interviews, uh, she realized that the one thing that separated the men and women who felt a deep sense of love and belonging from people who seemed to struggle with it, the one thing is the belief in their worthiness. If we want to fully experience love and belonging, we must believe that we are worthy, and lo- uh, worthy of love and belonging. See, I think the greatest challenge for most of us is believing that we are worthy now, right this minute. See, worthiness doesn't have prerequisites. So many of us have uh, knowingly or unknowingly allowed or been handed down a long list of worthiness prerequisites. And they can sound something like this. I'll be worthy when I lose 10 kilos. I'll be worthy if I can get pregnant. I'll be worthy if I can get married. I'll be worthy if I become successful, if I make my first million. I'll be worthy if I can hold my marriage together. I'll be worthy if I, and you can fill in the blanks. Here's what it truly means to be uh, at the heart of wholehearted worthiness. It's experiencing worthiness now. Not if, not when. We are worthy of love and belonging now, this minute. There's a Bible passage I want to share with you. It's based on Romans chapter 3, verse 25. It reads, Whom God put forward as an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now that is just like a terrible one-liner verse to share because it doesn't seem to make sense um, because it's out of context. But I want to do is just pull out some concepts here. This text says that God is righteous. Right here. God's righteousness is shown. And the reason is, why is God righteous? And the answer is, because... Oh dear. <laughs> Because of his divine forbearance, because he forgives. Does that make sense? God is righteous because he forgives. And if that's true, then the same is true for us. We are worthy. We are righteous because we forgive, not because we perform. There's something really important about relationships. You know, whenever there's a deficit in, in an account, let's say I have a bank account, and I overdraw by $100, the bank is going to come at me with a fine, right? You get fined, whatever it is, uh, whatever it is, you get fined this much, and now in order to make my relationship with the bank right, what do I do? I take out $100 plus whatever the fine is and pay it, and then me and the bank are squared away. That's not how it works with relationships. Relationships are more complicated. Let me try and illustrate this way. Hey, Micah, can I get your help? Can you come up here next to me? So let's say I'm walking through the park one day. I'm enjoying the bright, sunny day with my son, Micah. And all of a sudden, behind the shadows comes a kidnapper. Torby, can I get your help? And so a kidnapper comes, and he takes away my son. Micah is now kidnapped. And I'm, I'm looking everywhere. Micah, where are you? Where are you? I'm here. <laughs> One week passes, one year passes, five years passes, and Torby actually realizes, you know what? I did a bad thing, let me try and make this right. So what does he try and do? He returns Micah to me. Hello. Now, he just undid the wrong that he did, right? Does that mean that we're okay? No way! And that's the challenge with relationships. You cannot undo bad actions with good actions. It doesn't make things right. Thank you you guys can go back to seats. And so the question is, here we are in our relationship with God. We've done things that are bad. So then how do we make it right? And the answer is you just can't. God has to forgive. God has to forgive. That's the only way that we make things right. So it is in our relationships. If somebody hurts you, the only way to make it truly right is for you to then forgive. Sure, it helps when the person says sorry. Sure, if somebody wrecks my car, it's good if they fix my car. But I still don't trust that person, right? If I see them on the road, I'm going like, to go down the other path or I'm going go to take, take a detour. So it, there's this idea of how do you then instill in, in your life this sense of worthiness And it's then to tap in to the forgiveness of God. See, there's a difference between fitting in and belonging. They're not the same thing. And in fact, fitting in gets in the way of belonging. Fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be to be accepted. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. And the point of Romans chapter 3, verse 25, is that God extends belonging to you. And by extension, the church is supposed to cultivate this sense of belonging. And so I hope that in your life, as you come to grips with Uh, your own sinful nature, your own faults, your own humanity, your own selfishness. May you tap into the compassion, the courage, and the belonging that God gives you. May you experience it in this community of faith. And it's my prayer that this whole experience will become a transformational experience for you. May God bless you. Why don't I close the prayer, and we'll finish for today. Father God, we come before you today, and as we are... Faced with our humanity, as we're faced with the humanity around us, I just want to pray that you would give us this strong sense of your presence. May we know your compassion. May we, give, may we act courageously. May we provide community and a sense of belonging in this place. And as a result, I just want to pray that we would really um, sense your presence in our lives, in our community, may it transform us uh, to be a light to the, uh, to the, to the world around us. And so we thank you for hearing our prayers. We ask this in your name. Amen.